Hello, ski racing fans, and welcome back to the American Downhiller podcast presented by SkiRacing.com, episode number two, titled The Legend of Lindsey Vaughn. I'm Doug Lewis with Hunnicom winner Darren Rawls and World Cup winner Marco Sullivan. And today we have the most special guest, the GOAT, the winningest of all American downhillers with 82 World Cup wins. 43 of those downhill wins. Lindsay Vaughn. Lindsay, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. I have to start with some stats on you and Lake Louise. Raced it 17 years on the World Cup level from 2001 to 2017. 18 wins, 14 in downhill, 25 podiums. The biggest DH win margin, 1.95 seconds in 2011. That's like a day and a half. Smallest DH win, 0.03 seconds average dh win 0.84 amazing so what is it about lake louise that enabled you to dominate and was it always your course uh i think i just understood the course well i wouldn't say i always dominated lake louise because i definitely straddled once coming <laughs> off of tickety and i was helicoptered off i think that was my second time down so that that was uh that was not good also, my first year in 2001, um, I crashed off the last jump. I was trying to qualify for the 2002 Olympics. I was in third place. My, like, was, I think it was my first Super G World Cup. Crashed off the last jump, didn't make it. I still made the Olympic team, but uh, it was not, it did not start off with a good, good no, let me just say that. But it was one of those races where when I was at Ski Club Vale, um, we would watch that race every single year um, on outside. TV, I think it was at the time. Um, and I remember visualizing that course over and over. So even before I ever set foot on that course, I, I visualized it in my mind a million times. I definitely think that helped. But um, once I found the rhythm of the course and where to gain speed and where I could make mistakes and where I couldn't, uh, I just had so much confidence. I honestly didn't really need to inspect that much. I knew, I just knew the hill so well. So um not didn't start off well but i i'd say it ended well <laughs> yeah you brought up lindsey uh the amount of times you've mentally rehearsed that run lake louise was that something more at that one specific venue for you than in say cortina or other places yeah it was the only um that i knew of the only race that was on television in the u.s so it was really the only opportunity i had um, to really see World Cup racing, other than buying the World Cup winning runs VHS tape. We all had those. <laughs> or, oh, yes. <laughs> but I mean, it was, it was, yeah, I think I took, I think myself and Kiko Vale took a lot of pride and that was a, you know, our North American downhill. And even though it was Canada, it was still felt like a home race. And um, I always enjoyed watching it and visualizing it. And I think visual, visualization in my career was, um, something that I, I grew very good at. Um, and I think part of that was from the lessons I learned at Ski Club and, you know, again, visualizing Lake Louise a million times. And we had like Norams there um, coming up as well. Did you have, do you ever having good success in the Norams or? I never raced the Norams. I, oh, no. I, no, not there. I raced a few Norams, I think in, uh, white face and uh, I don't remember really remember where I did, didn't do very many Norams I, I kind of skipped into that and went to Europa Cup and then uh, right into World Cup because we 
we had a really good and deep World Cup speed team at the time. And with the 2002 Olympics coming up, they saw potential in my speed. And so I was kind of along for the ride with that kind of 2002 prep team. Um, and I was able to get a lot of experience. I think they're kind of testing out Julia Mancuso and I to see if, you know, which one of us or if either of us were going to make it um, and maybe they could put one of us in for future development for the, the combined 2002 Olympics, which they ended up putting both of us in. Let's break down this course just a little bit. I've studied your wins. You've won it from top to bottom. You've won it on the last five seconds. Is there a particular section of course that you just love that you just didn't even, it was just natural to you and why? Um, I think fall away was definitely uh, a section of the course that I understood very well. And I knew how to really gain a lot of speed um, and coming onto the flats, carrying that speed onto the flats and really gaining momentum. I didn't, you know, of course, always do that. Sometimes I won the race in the last five seconds. Um, but I'd say generally that was a place that I understood very well and I could really f find the fall line well. Um, coach's corner as well. Um, I wasn't always great at tickety. I think that's obviously my straddle. Um, didn't, you know, wasn't always a place where I felt entirely comfortable. Um, but, but yeah, as I fall away, was, was kind of the place where I, I gained the most confidence and the most speed from. Well, I mean, watching you race there, you, you definitely took more of aggressive line and just like ski with full confidence. I mean, there's, there's times where you, you made mistakes too through there, you know, but you're on the edge. And that's what I loved about your skiing is that you're always aggressive, just firing it down the mountain. And, um, you know, you just, I never thought like, uh, you know, there was ever a perfect run I ever had. There's always like my fast runs were a little out of control, but like, and uh, in, in watching you ski, that's kind of the same way. I mean, you're on the edge and I think that's the most fun way to ski. You feel alive that way, but, and there's, there's risk. I mean, you obviously took a lot of risk, but were you really pushing it, um, pushing your limits or you, did you feel like you're kind of skiing within yourself a lot of places? I mean, I, I definitely never skied to have a perfect run. I think to your point, you know, there never, there never really is a perfect run. And especially if you're pushing the limits, which I always did. And that's one thing that I loved about speed is that, you know, I loved pushing the limits to see what I could do. And, um, you know, in, in fishnet, you know, I always try different lines, you know, I love trying aggressive lines or, you know, really round lines. I, I, I loved trying to experiment and see what I could get away with. Um, because it, you know, comparatively it's on the easier side kind of. And so it's really difficult to differentiate yourself from the competitors. So there's only a few turns and fishnet is one of those where, you know, especially if it's icy from the men's race the week before, you know, you really can, you know, separate yourself from the rest of the, of the group. Um, and I, to your point of making a mistake, I, I hip checked once in fishnet and uh, was still able to win the race, but mainly because I knew that I could get so much speed um, from fall away, you know, and, and make up that time on the flats, hopefully. But, um, but yeah, I, I always push myself to limit. I, I love the risk of downhill. Um, it's really what has always excited me. Um, it's never been about, you know, the perfect route or the perfect turn. It's just about, you know, pushing yourself to the limit every time. And I, I 
always said to myself, I never want to have any regrets. You know, I never want to not push myself enough and get to the finish line and say I could have done more. So while I crashed a lot, I never had any regrets because I would rather crash than have gotten down and be, you know, fourth or fifth or 10th and say, I, sh I should have done more with that. So that was always my approach to downhill and generally just to racing as a whole. I was wondering, you're talking about your approach to downhill and obviously you ended your career as best downhiller of all time in our country and for any country, I guess, for ladies, but uh, you starting at like Buck Hill, right? And you have these, these beginnings at, at the tiny mountain and we're running uh, the American downhiller camps now, um, mostly out West to like try and just teach kids the fundamentals of jumping and aerodynamics. And, um, but at what point did you really feel comfortable with that? And was there a time in your career when, when it all clicked moving from like a solemn skier to a speed skier? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Buck Hill was less than 300 vertical feet, so it's not exactly uh, a typical start for a downhiller, but I started, you know, going out to Colorado when I was um, about 11, um, did a couple months out there with Sico Vale, and then eventually, I think I was 12 or 13, my family moved out there, and really, you know, I moved out there so that I could be able to ski in the mountains and, you know, learn downhill and Super G and even GS, you know, and I think the GS course at Buck Hill was like, five or six gates. Um, and I think that I definitely learned, you know, obviously I learned the fundamentals of skiing at Buck Hill, but I learned the fundamentals of downhill uh, at Ski Club Vale. Um, we had the junior Olympics there for, I think pretty much most of my junior racing, um, which included a super Gina downhill. So we did a lot of prep on that, on that junior Olympic course. Um, we did camel jumps. We did we didn't do a lot of regular jump training, I would say. I think that I learned more of the jumps um, with the US ski team. We had camps at Bachelor Mountain at the time and they had um, just a few jumps set up and we could kind of come in, come into the jump with different speed um, and practice our technique. I don't feel like that's necessarily done that much anymore. Um, I think your <laughs> American downhill camps are like the only ones that do it. And I, I appreciate it because I think it's, um, a fundamental skill that, um, you know, I feel like people make it onto the, the U S ski team or, um, you know, they're, they've been racing Europe cups and Norams. They really, they kind of skip that step of, of learning jump technique of, you know, learning visualization, you know, how body position makes such a big difference in the air. And, um, and also again, visualization. Um, so I, I really have Skiko Vale to thank for all of those skills and, um, I, I always loved going fast though. I, I never had a problem transitioning from Buck Hill to, to Vail. Um, I mean, I was always racing everyone just even on the cat track from the top of the lift to Golden Peak, um, you know, trying to see if I could get my skis to glide better than everyone else's, you know, it was just something that um, I inherently always loved. Um, and again, I think I was lucky that I was able to get you know, the skills and the coaching and the, the uh, facilities to be able to practice those skills that got me ready for the World Cup. You talked about always loving speed and uh, I do a lot of speaking and people think I'm crazy and I'm always, the crazy downhillers end up in the hospital. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, Lindsay raised her hand. That'd be me. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all been there. Do you think you have something screwed on too tight or something screwed on too loose? 
is it something that you just are born with this love of speed tight loose that's what <laughs> yeah that's it yeah both it's definitely yeah definitely i think i've never actually heard anyone say it that when i i think i am a little i'm wound a little bit tight when it comes to competition i am hyper competitive at everything that i do um so skiing was great you know real life not so great um but i think i definitely had a screw loose when it came to speed i mean i there the fear factor is just not there for me and i think that's one of the reasons why you know after i've been injured nine thousand times i i still was never afraid of it because i literally love it i mean i would do anything to get back on the mountain and, and go 80 miles an hour you know it's just something that uh, is is in me that I feel like I need to do, which is why it's a little difficult now that um, I'm retired and I, I love just you know jumping on a pair of downhill skis every once in a while and and uh, hopefully not getting my pass pulled. Um, but it's not it's definitely not the, not the same. I'll say that. <laughs> hey Lindsay, with that said, um, it brings up a point like you came back from so many injuries and right back on the top of your game. You know, what kind of advice could you pass on to others, especially say like Breezy right now, who was super fast last year. She hasn't quite made that next step with a World Cup win, but she's really close. You know, she's um, she's got the speed, but did you talk to her in copper or, or just uh, have you talked to her at all, like just trying to help her mentally? Because we all know it's like physically you get there and but that mental kind of aspect is next step. And just like, I mean, your fire in the start when we were shooting an HBO documentary and you and Cortina and I was up there for a training run and you're in the gate and you're just, you know, your routine is just like moving your fingers and your gloves and getting all fired up, breathing heavy. And, and like, that's like, I think that mental cue, I don't know if there's something cool that you said to yourself or some of Heinz or somebody that, you know, your coaches, you know, last couple of words, but one, I guess I'd like to know what you could, if you passed on anything to help, you know, breeze your other kids you know, come back from injuries, but two, like, what did you kind of like think about or say to yourself in the start to get completely fired up, ready to throw down? Well, I guess I'll start with the second question because the hand thing is something that I actually started doing because I felt like there was too much time. You know, once you put your poles over the wand, it was just too much time to think. I mean, it was like 15 seconds. I'm like, what am I going to do with 15 seconds? You know, and I wanted to keep that sharp mentality where, you know, I was really you know in an aggressive state of mind um and so i kind of started doing that and and you know i always liked also my poles to be in a specific position you know like the feeling of the pressure of you know the the strap in your hand um so it was a good way for me to just mentally disconnect from the 15 seconds um while still staying aggressive and i think my breathing was something that i developed over time to be able to get myself into that kind of aggressive state of mind. Um, and Breezy, you know, Breezy knows I'm always there. Um, I talk to her a lot and I, you know, obviously saw her in copper. She was, she didn't get to ski one of the days cause um, you know, her knee was swollen and I, her injury is very substantial. Um, and she's worked incredibly hard to get back for it. I think what helped me is knowing that I was in the absolute best shape I possibly could be in. Um, sometimes I wasn't as, you know, obviously I wasn't the same athlete that I was before the injury. I think you never really are. And sometimes, you know, you're physically not able to do the things you were able to do before, but I still believed in the strength that I had and how much work I had put in. Um, and that gave me confidence, you know, I, and, and I also, again, I'm someone that 
said, I'm not risk averse. You know, I knew that I could get injured at any time. And, and I was okay with that. You know, I was always okay with that. And I think, you know, inherently when you get injured, a lot of, especially the, the women that I know, um, they continuously think about the injury and what if it's going to happen again? And I just spent all this time, you know, getting back to this point and I could be, you know, right back in the same place, which I have also done <laughs> coming back, trying to make it to Sochi, you know, crashing in copper, um, in the November camp and missing out on those Olympics was, was pretty brutal Two ACLs back to back within a, you know, 10 month span was, was not ideal, but I, I still had no regrets. I mean, I wish that I hadn't skied that day because conditions were not ideal, but I still was in the starting gate with confidence. And I think that's one thing that, you know, Breezy takes a lot of pride in how hard she works as she should. And, and I think that's something that's going to give her, you know, the mental edge to be able to hopefully get back to where she was. And then, you know, building on that and getting those, those wins. I think right now, Sophie is in incredible shape. I, I don't think I've ever seen her so strong and also, you know, happy Go, and yeah. clear my clear, Yeah. Goja. Yeah. And it's happy and clear-minded so I think she's going to be a really tough one to beat this year but that being said you know Sophie skis similar to myself where you know she always pushes herself to the absolute limit which is why I love I love watching a race you never know what she's going to do but I think that also gives you know Breezy an opportunity to capitalize on on those mistakes if she does make any but um, I'm always cheering for Breezy and, um, she's, you know, again, one of the hardest workers that I know. So I'm, I hope that she's able to come back this season and get, get back on the podium and also hopefully get a win under her belt. Last week, we talked a little bit about rivalries. I had Zerberg and Marcus, uh, Marco had Kroll, uh, Rolves had the Herminator. Talk about those rivalries throughout your career. What did they give you or what did they do to you to raise your limit? Who were those people and what did they do for you? Well, it's interesting for me. I mean, I think, um, you know, when I was really winning a lot, Maria and I were one and two. I mean, I think we had, between the two of us, had every single downhill win for like three years straight. No one else popped in there. But we were also really good friends. Um, you know, I I never looked at it as, you know, racing against her. I, I looked at it as I just want to win, you know, and, and that's that includes beating everyone, you know, not, not just Maria, but everyone. Um, you know, I think the rivalry that Julia and I had uh, as juniors was something that really motivated me um, because, you know, kind of everyone had anointed her as, you know, the golden child. And I was kind of an afterthought. Um, I mean, I was really skinny. I, you know, was very green um, and I liked speed and Julia was, you know, getting World Cup points already in you know, like her first season of GS. Um, so we, you know, when we first were FIS um, legal, we were on very different trajectories. And, um, and I think that that definitely motivated me, not just in those years, but also following because I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder that no one had believed in me. And actually people had, I'd heard overheard conversations of my coaches saying they don't believe in me. So, um, you know, I, I, I think I had something to prove to them, but also to myself that, that I could do it. Um, and beyond that, I, I don't really, you know, see myself as having really any rivalries. I think, again, it was more, you know, people that motivated me um, that I, that I, you know, I, I watched and I, you know, studied and, um, you know, found where I could be better and, and I think helped push me to be better. Not that I was, you know, necessarily 
racing just specifically against them as a rivalry. Hey, uh, with that said, like when you're coming up your first couple of World Cup races, was there anybody that was like a little more intimidating on the women's tour, like kind of trying to mentally mess with you a little bit because they saw your speed and kind of a little threatened? Uh, I mean, you know, kind of the first seasons where I was you know, starting to get um, wins and speed, uh, Kostelich definitely tried to play a couple of mind games with me and, um, you know, tried to kind of be the voice when the weather was bad that, you know, it was really dangerous and, you know, I don't know what's going to happen and you know, kind of put these little um, nuggets of doubt in myself and I, I, I saw right through it and I, I laughed to myself. Nice. I'm like, I don't know what you think that you're doing here, but it's certainly actually doing the opposite because I now want to beat you. Yeah, well, for um, you, it's more fuel to your fire. For others, maybe it worked. You know, it's like she is definitely one that it's funny you pointed her out because she's one of the ones that I, I could see being a little nasty like that. Yeah. Yeah, she just, it's, it's, and it's not even, it was never aggressive. It was never angry. It was just this little voice that she <laughs> tried to get in there. But I have my earmuffs on it. I didn't, it didn't get in. But I think, you know, also women are a little bit different, I think, in the way they approach um, kind of the mental mind games. And um, I think women are mostly inherently, they don't want to talk directly to each other. They're, you know, it's more behind and, you know, it's like gossipy and it's not really anything direct. There's no like direct conflict where, you know, men are like, I want to beat you or, you know, this, this bothers me and you guys talk directly to each other. Women are definitely not like that, especially on the World Cup. And it's usually that I hear things in the media, you know, like this person said this or this person said that. And, you know, coaches hear things. And, um, and honestly, again, all of those things just, uh, motivated me you know every time you know people said bad things or or you know whatever it was it was just another another way to to drive me in in the off season and also in the race season this week we are proud to welcome the adl ski club as a new supporter to this season's podcast the adl has members all over the country and are huge fans of the world cup and big supporters of the american downhillers their dream trips go to Kitzbühel, Wengen, the Dolomites, and Japan for Japan. But this month, they are supporting the American Downhillers with an online auction to help raise money for the Men's Speed Team Coaches Mentorship Fund, and they need your help. The aim of the fund is to bring back experienced coaches and athletes to pass along their valuable insight, experience, and support to the new generation of coaches. This year's funds go to get Forrest Carey, Dane Spencer, and our own Marco Sullivan back coaching our best. For all information on supporting this fund, go to adlskiclub.com slash fundraiser. That's adlskiclub.com slash fundraiser. You can bet on all kinds of great U.S. ski team gear with race suits available from Steven Nyman, Jared Goldberg, and Tommy Ford, as well as official U.S. ski team clothing. All items are 100% tax deductible and will go exclusively to the fund. The ADL and Coach Scotty Venus, thank you for your support. Lake Louise, I mean, you dominated there, but the U.S. ski team women had some great results also. You know, I think it was 2014, there was a sweep. You, Stacy Cook, Julie Mancusa, and then Lauren Ross is sixth. I mean, that was awesome, you know, times. And, and um, you, I mean, obviously, you want to you wanna win. You want to be the number one in the world, but also be number one on the U.S. ski team. That's a big thing. But, I mean, one, I guess, like, were you guys really working well? together those last couple of years, like those couple of years and was there anything different for that race 
anything else and and how was the party that night like <laughs> you guys do. I don't think I I don't think I ever party especially not at Lake Louise unfortunately um but <laughs> I, I think that now, we really Calgary's a good place <laughs> Um, you know, I think we had a really good downhill team um, for a lot of years, and I think we really worked well with each other. You know, we helped each other. Our core supports were awesome. Um, you know, we pushed each other in training. You know, I think, you know, it was Stacy and Loren and Alice McKennis, and um, I think I, you know, I, I learned, you know, what being a good teammate was from Kristen Clark and Jonna Mendez. You know, I. I I was a really young athlete within a very mature downhill group and they really, they didn't torment me. I mean, they did a little bit. Uh, John did give me a swirly, but, um, <laughs> but I do think that they taught me a lot about, um, you know, how you approach being a team. I think Jonna was one of the best teammates I ever had. You know, she was one that loved course reports and was really specific and always asked me what I needed. And, and, you know, she could tailor her report based on that. And I kind of try to take that into the team when, you know, we were always on a roll. I think that's something that we figured out, you know, how to do really well is support each other. And, you know, it's kind of us against the world. And I love that, you know, there was, you know, it was, it, whether it was me or Stacy or Julia, we were always on the podium pretty much every single time, you know, for quite a few years. And, and, um, and I loved it. It was such, such a great dynamic. And, being on the podium with uh, all Americans was pretty awesome. I just uh, listening to you talk about the team and it sounds like you're still pretty tied with, with some heavy hitters now, like talking to the top world cup girls and um, our own team. Like what do you see coming up for this first race in Lake Louise? Do you have any predictions? <laughs> um, I was on the hill for a little bit. I watched, you know, our girls, I watched, um, the Austrian girls, I think, um, you know, Keely and Keely Cashman unfortunately broke her hand. So, uh, you know, I, she was actually skiing really well. So I'm not sure, you know, how quickly she's going to be able to jump back from that. That was her knuckle was like shattered. <laughs> um, but, you know, Breezy, I think, you know, obviously has a good chance of, of getting back in there. I think she's still building her confidence. And I hope, you know, these past few days in Copper have kind of given her that going into Lake Louise. Um, but also she knows like Louise, you know, she knows what to do and, and you, know, you don't really need a lot um, if you've raced there a few times to be able to go in there and ski with confidence. Uh, I think, you know, Bella, um, Bella Wright is definitely someone that's coming up and, and her and I are very close and um, I think she's someone that, you know, has become a student of the sport in a way that, you know, I feel she's matured a lot in the last few years, especially the this past season. And I think she's she's mentally ready, you know, to get in there. I think she's still working on building her confidence because she has great instincts and great speed, which is what you can't teach. Um, but, you know, I think she's young and she needs a little bit of work on tactics and, you know, which is the same with any speed skier um, kind of coming onto the scene. And, you know, Masuga is skiing pretty well. Um, and I honestly didn't get to see many of the other girls. I think Trisha Mangan was there. Um, and she actually skied very well. I think she's, you know, most of the time, one of the fastest in the group. Um, and she works incredibly hard. I mean, she's going to school and, you know, trying to make the team. And I have a great deal of respect for that. And, you know, she's someone that is putting her head down and working hard every single day. And, um, and I love it. So I think, 
you know, while our team isn't as deep, you know, as I would hope it would be, I think we do have potential coming up. Um, and there were a couple of young development team girls that were getting training on the venue as well in Copper. And I think, um, you know, given more time and direction, you know, we can hopefully foster those young girls as well. Um, so, but I will say, um, you know, I'm disappointed that Alex Pottomoser isn't on the team anymore. He was my speed coach since I was, you know, 16. And I think he brought a lot to the team, but I, I think, and I hope the the new staff will be able to kind of help also these girls develop, but I don't know this, these, this staff as well. Um, but I think it does take, you know, a team effort from the coaching staff as well to be able to develop these girls. Just go with that a little bit on the coach. What did you need from the coach? Was it more mental? Was it technical? Was it physical? And I know it changes throughout your career, but what did you want from a coach and what worked for you? Um, you know, I never needed anything mentally from a coach. I, I always was a very driven person. I think what I needed from a coach most was positive reinforcement um, and simplicity, but also knowledge. Um, so that's one thing that Alex brought to the table. He was, I mean, he obviously was an amazing racer himself. He was racing with Everharder and all those guys, you know, when he was a junior and blew his knee out um, and never really made it to where he should have gone. But he understood downhill and Super G specifically. Um, you know, he understood the line, which is very difficult in Super G. You know, it's hard to gauge the speed. Um, it's hard to really know the line. And he always knew the line. And I could always trust him with that. You know, it's, it's important for a downhiller to be able to trust your coach and know that the line is accurate because when you're going obviously that fast, um, you have to trust where you're going and you have to trust that when you get a report, you know, especially in Super G, that if there's an adjustment that needs to be made, they can give that to you and you can obviously make that adjustment. So I, th I think for me, Alex was, you know, really the perfect combination of every, everything. He was not overcomplicated. He was always positive. Um, he always believed in me and um, I was always able to trust him. He always gave me precise and accurate information. Where did Alex end up this year? Do you know where he's, is he still coaching for a different team? Yeah, yeah. yeah he's head of the Austrian speed team. Oh, funny. How yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah. It was wearing the red, Austrian all red. Team? I was like, what are you doing? Why are you wearing this uniform? <laughs> is, is it the Austrian women's speed team? Yeah. Correct? And yeah. They, they, have, they have a lot of girls and they are going to be a force this year. They have, I mean, they had 12 girls up there some of which were coming back from injury, but I mean, most of which were skiing pretty well. And um, so they have, they have a very deep, deep team. And with him as a coach, I would say they'll probably be pretty darn competitive. Talking about coaching to expand on that. So Patrick Rimmel, Alpine director now with the U S ski team, he was for like seven years with the Canadians came back. And then um, your last season, didn't you a Red Bull kind of help support him to be in your camp as a private coach in a way? And, and um, how, how do you think he's going to help support our top athletes, but also really develop the youth? You know, like you said, like we don't, we've never had a lot of depth. We've had great skiers, but what we need in the U S is, is, you know, strong depth and, and um, I'm just kind of wondering like, you know, his position now, how he's going to help develop that in your eyes. Yeah. I mean, I've known Patrick since I was, I think, 15 or 16. Um, and he started on the U.S. team, I think, around uh, 2002 or 2003. Um, so, you know, I think he has a great 
skill in the sense that he can really manage things well and develop things well and has a great business sense. I think he also is, um, he wants to do more business, but he is an amazing coach as well. I mean, he was, um, he coached me in not only tech, but also speed. Um, and he did help me in my final season and um, not as a private coach though. I mean, I, I definitely was always integrated within the team. I never separated myself. Um, I needed sometimes, you know, different training because of my knee and what I was capable of doing. Um, but I was always very integrated into the team and everyone that I worked with was also working with the rest of the girls. But I was one of the people that I, I really felt strongly in bringing Rimmel back. I think that, you know, to your point of development, it's one thing that we really need um, in the US is to focus more on the development. I mean, the only reason that I'm even on the, I, that I was on the team was because I was on an in development team program and we had the funding to do that before the 2002 Olympics. Um, and I think we need to get back to that. You know, we need to support athletes on, you know, the lower levels, Noram, Europa Cup, and really develop them from the very beginning. And Aldo was ahead of that development team program in, in between 2000 and 2002. Um, so I think Rimmel knows that and he understands that. He understands how to, again, manage the team in a way. And, and, and I think in a, in a disciplined way, you know, he's obviously very European, but he's also very American. You know, he lives in Heber <laughs> in Utah. You know, he, he's, he's very much committed to, to being in the US. And um, I think that's something that we need because we need to be able to bridge the gap between, you know, Europe and the US and utilize the European assets, but also, you know, maintain our DNA as Americans. Here, here on the development in 1980, we had never won a World Cup. We never won a World Championship medal. We had never won. This is the men's downhill team. Never won an Olympic medal. And in 80, we started with 40 people. It wasn't that great. We had 40 development kids. And four years later, we had Bill Johnson, myself, and just went on to AJ, Darren, Marco. So it it takes a bigger pyramid. I'm I'm right with you. I want to get back to Lake Louise and skis. Did you have a Lake Louise pair of skis like that was it? Or did you just win on anything Heinz gave you? Talk about the equipment specific to Lake Louise. Yeah, I kind of just won on whatever Heinz he gave me. Heinz, he's, he's not called Magic Heinz for nothing. I mean, he he always knew what he was doing and I always trusted him. Um, I think, you know, when I won by the 1.95 um that was a season that i was on men's skis and no one else was um i was pretty much laughed out of the room when people heard that i was doing that um no one thought that i would be able to turn the skis and and then i came down and you know mopped the floor with everyone which was was awesome because i love when people tell me i can't do something and then i go and show them that i can um and i think it changed you know how women approach downhill and what they were capable of doing and you know from an equipment standpoint I think everyone just assumed that they needed soft shorter skis and that was the best way and you know I was on a really really stiff men's ski and I was very similar to Bodie in that way I loved a stiff ski and and I I loved talking to the men about it because they were very open uh, about sharing information where women do not share information at all ever which is very annoying, <laughs> but um, I could always talk to the men because I was skiing on the same skis. So I talked to Axel and Jansrud and the French guys. I, you know, I, I wanted to know all of the information that they had, and I could also talk to them. You know, after they raced at Lake Louise, you know, how is the new new model running? Um, you know, what's you know what's going on with the skis? And so 
and also boots for that matter. Um, so I, I definitely felt like, um, you know, being on men's skis was an advantage from, you know, obviously a performance standpoint, but also from an information gathering perspective, you know, because I was able to talk to the men so openly about, you know, what was working and what, what wasn't. Um, but honestly, the skis were kind of irrelevant in a lot of ways because I knew, you know, I knew that hill so well. And once I started winning on it, it was, you know, I won on Rossignol and I won on head, you know, it was, it wasn't really, I mean, obviously you need to, to have fast skis to win on the flats. Um, but, you know, I kind of, I, again, I felt like I had a lot of confidence on that trail. Doug Lewis here. If you are a U12, U14, or U16, elite team fitness camps are for you. This is not your average fitness camp as we teach the vital skills of sports psychology and sports nutrition, along with tough, challenging workouts. You will leave camp with more power, strength, and agility, with a deeper understanding about nutrition, and with the mental skills of confidence, focus, and pushing limits, which will take you to the next level. Over our 30 years, we have coached Olympic champions, World Cup stars, NCAA champions, including US ski teamers, Michaela Schifrin, Lauren Masuga, Alice Merriweather, Jimmy Krupka, Grace Henderson, and Sammy Worthington. And finally, although we push our limits to the edge, we have a ton of fun. We are holding two week-long sessions this July at the Killington Mountain School. Find all the info at EliteTeam.com. How about boots? Was there something that it was, uh... Did you have a different setup between tech and speed for boots? Yeah, I always had different setup for tech and speed. I had, um, I never really changed uh, what I liked. I was always very specific. Um, you know, I, I like the less aggressive boot. Um, you know, I, I don't like, um, I think it's very dangerous to have an aggressive setup and speed. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people go with an aggressive boot setup and a lot of base level. And I, I don't think that that's the right approach. I think you can get yourself in a, a tricky situation if um, things don't necessarily go right. Um, I think base level is a really important component of speed that's um, not really thought about as much as I think it should should be. Um, because it, again, it can make a big difference and obviously the way your skis are gliding, but also, you know, catching edges is something that's been happening you know, quite a bit, especially with all the, the man-made snow. And um, it's really easy for things to go wrong really quickly. So I think I have a different kind of perspective than most on um, on boots and, and skis and all of those details. I'm, I'm I was, again, I was very specific and um, very detail-oriented when it came to my equipment. So um, I think it's probably counter to what most women do. Yes, yeah, so on boot setup, were you more like canted inside so you had less edge? Like, yeah. you know... A full degree, you remember how much you're in? More. Yeah, more than a oh, degree. Yeah. No, for yeah. me too. I, I like having that feeling of, you know, like the skis away from me, you know, and I didn't want to get jammed up. And you see so many, especially young kids, you know, having way too much edge and fighting it. But it's like when you have like that less aggressive setup, especially in boots, like you're saying, you can get your skis away from you. You can get a good platform and get really get the angles set up so you can just, I mean, put a lot of power on the skis and, Obviously, yeah. you look super comfortable. I was just watching actually some video of you this morning, tuning up to this, um, the top part of Lake Louise, and your bully just so loose and just, I think that's another thing like uh, that Marco and the whole crew at American Downhill were trying to like emphasize the kids is be just milk the terrain, work the terrain, you want to be connected with the mountain. And um, you could see in your skiing, like, you're always so well connected and just uh, riding the train really, really well. And that has a lot to do with your setup for sure. 
Yeah, I, I think that it's, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to, you know, be able to work terrain when your skis are so aggressive, you know, it's just, you're not able to let your skis float, you know, you're not able to really use the backside um, of any rolls. And I think, you know, it really stems from this old school mentality of, you know, let's do your boots, you know, your, your kneecap has to align perfectly over your big toe. And that's how it is. And that's not how it is. You know, you could stand there, but when you're actually, you know, skiing in a turn, that's, that's not how, you know, your body works. You could be, you know, you could be duck footed, you're going to be, you know, bow, bow legged. There's a lot of different things that could happen that, you know, require a different setup then, you know, let's just make your kneecap line up with your toes. Um, and I think a lot of kids are, you know, to the point of, you know, Marco trying to teach them how to, you know, glide and absorb terrain, you know, it's, it's almost impossible for kids to do that with how their boots are set up. I would rather, I think, rather just get a straight boot with no canting, just go out of the box, than have someone overly cant their ski, their boots to be aggressive. I think they're better off. And also it's more consistent. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of times um, boots are ground and they're not actually even when they're were put on a flat surface, they'll rock, which then will be obviously extremely dangerous when you're in a binding because then there's too much play and your ski could pop out. So I think there's a, a lot of room for improvement in the U.S. on, on from the equipment side. You know, Dane Spencer comes to our camps and helps, helps kids out with boots. And he's got a lot of the similar mentality of that boots, often come from the factory with that little little bit of wobble and just to get them flat and to get them to zero that's a great starting point and then it kind of goes from how the kid skis and how you line up but um, as you emphasize like so important to be connected to that and and know what's going on <laughs> yeah I just talked to Dane in copper and I, I've heard um, from a lot of the coaches that um, his boot work's been been really helpful and a lot of the kids have had a lot of um success so far with what he's been doing so i'm happy that someone's out there um doing that and I, there actually is a couple i i saw from a friend of mine that there's a new um boot grinding machine that can actually um do it very accurately in a quick amount of time so i don't remember what the machine was called but um i'm excited that that you know exists and that kids can you know get lined up right from the beginning fun fact my one of my first seasons, um, I think was trying to qualify for the US team. Um, I didn't finish in 50 out of 55 races and I installed. I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? You know, I'm my dad was so frustrated. He's like, if you don't finish this race, like you will not qualify for the US team. And it was like there's nothing I could do. You know, I, I leaned in every single time and I found out later that one of my boots was double canted. So I was over two degrees in on one of my boots. <laughs> <laughs> and you know ironically i started seeing speed because of that you know i mean i was going to ski speed anyways but i kind of focused more on speed because because of that and i had different boots and they were working and i was skiing well but in slalom i literally was not finishing because i was over canted on one side and it wasn't me i was happy just to find out years later that it wasn't me <laughs> <laughs> uh something you said struck a chord with me when said you said if someone tells me i can't I'm going to. And all of us, when we hear a question, we'll say yes instead of no. We'll say, why not instead of why? So where did that come from? A dad, a coach? Where did that come from where you're like, I'm going to say yes instead of no? Always. I mean, I've, I've been, um, I think my parents would probably say I was um, 
annoying, but I, you know, if they said I don't climb the tree, I climb the tree, you know, I, I, I just was something that, you know, if I felt like I could do it, I wanted to do it. Um, you know, and I, I've pretty much my whole career had someone telling me that I couldn't do something. I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the strength. I didn't have, you know, the ability, whatever it was. I felt like I always was have, having someone tell me that I couldn't. Um, and again, I just, I always use that as motivation because I knew what I was capable of. And even before I knew it, I believed it, you know, and um, that propelled me to work harder. You know, it wasn't that I just magically believed. It was also that I combined that with the work ethic that, you know, made that belief possible. You think that's a coaching strategy in the end? Because you obviously could do almost everything in, the, in a ski, on a ski you think your coaches just started telling you you couldn't just to piss you off and fire you <laughs> up? <laughs> I, I wish they were that smart. No, they, they, they didn't. <laughs> um, Alex no, is like, Lindsay, there's no way you can ski this section. It's, it, you know, it's just, it's too gnarly. <laughs> this is too fast for you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, watch me. Uh, he did he did joke with me sometimes but he I mean he couldn't even keep a straight face because he he knew what my answer would always be um but yeah I think that if my you know competitors would have known that they probably would have not said half the things they said um especially in the media um and I'm also I remember everything like I remember every time someone said something bad um especially if it was in an interview um and I, I never, well, I may be nice to you, I will never let it go. So just. Hey, Doug Lewis here, and I wanna talk about the American Downhiller Speed Camp. American Downhiller is the leader in teaching young ski racers how to go fast and have fun. 2023 will mark the sixth annual American Downhiller Speed Skills Camp in Mammoth Mountain. Our speed camp is coached exclusively by current and former World Cup racers and coaches who are passionate about helping the next generation of athletes achieve their dreams. We specifically focus on aerodynamics, jumping technique, speed tactics, and the mental training required to safely navigate Super G and downhill race courses. If you are a ski racer who wants to go fast, check out our website, americandownhiller.com for all specific camp dates. Nice. So you have, you've, going back like through your career, you've always been one of those super hard workers and all that. And, like, I mean, just kind of get used to like staying fit. What are you doing these days to like, you know, for workouts? I know you're still kind of way into that stuff. You <laughs> Don't know? you watch your Instagram? I get tired just watching. <laughs> what's, what's, I mean, your go -to, what's your go-to like, you know, get ready for the ski season sort of like routine? I mean, I like right now I'm kind of working – I'm, I usually in the summer, I do a lot of cardio. Um, and now I'm kind of working more into, you know, circuit training. I really, I've never did a lot of circuit training as a racer, um, because there wasn't a lot of need for it. And that's kind of mainly what I do. Um, I mean, I, I guess I do a lot more squats than, you know, leading up to the season that I, that I normally do like more stuff on the power plate and, um, you know, I've got my tempo at home, so I'm doing more of like the leg, you know, heavy leg hit sessions, um, trying to get a little bit of endurance in there, but I mean, it's not like I'm pushing myself to the extreme when I'm skiing down the mountain, you know, with my friends, but, um, but still it's nice to be, you know, and with my knee, I, I really have to stay in shape. And I think for me, it's more of a, a mental thing, um, to be working out as hard as I do than it is necessarily physical, 
um, because I don't have an outlet, you know, I don't have the skiing and at least in the gym, you know, I can be very present and, um, you know, put all of the other things aside and be able to just be in the moment and push myself really hard. And that's what I think I enjoy, enjoy the most. Real quick, my daughter Miley was asking, like, what's Lindsay do now, like for fun, like for sports? So is there anything, are you playing pickleball? Are you like, <laughs> <laughs> No, what's your, what's your deal in the, in the summertime? <laughs> not that old yet. Come on, I that's a pretty fun one. I'm, I'm definitely not old enough to play pickleball. Um, <laughs> I've actually, I've actually been playing a lot of tennis. Um, nice. I, I'm getting a, a replacement in the spring, um, and so I feel like I'm just going to grind my knee down to the to the stubs <laughs> and um, you know play as much tennis as I can, and it's been really fun. It's something that you know, it's like I can get some aggression out and. Um, yeah, I really enjoy it, but I kind of just enjoy doing anything and everything. You know, I love finding new sports and new challenges and I've gotten into a little bit mountain biking. I still suck at it, but I, I like it. Um, a lot of road biking, um, you know, I, I've been skinning, believe it or not. I hiked up a mountain on skins, mainly because I like being with my dogs and they love it. Um, but that's something that I've, I've kind of found that I slightly enjoy um <laughs> I think if you know if I was racing back in the day when you had to inspect you know hiking up the hill I would absolutely never have been a racer um that's why God created cheerlifts um but I, I just enjoy you know having fun and you know wake surfing or wakeboarding or kite surfing or whatever it is I think um you know finding those new challenges is, is fun I was part of that era where we had to climb up the slalom so yeah, that, no thanks. That was a, down a, hard, a hard pass for me. That's a yeah. hard pass. So, yeah. One thing that we haven't talked about, I'd like to squeak in here is nutrition. I remember covering you and at 1.8, 23 eggs a day or something really crazy. Um, what are your, you know, your simple uh, go-tos and beliefs about nutrition and, and how important it is? Yeah, I mean, I've tried a lot of different things. Um, I was, you know, I tried um, the no carbs. I tried pretty much only carbs. I mean, back when I was first on the team, they were telling us to eat, you know, huge amounts of pasta at every meal. And, you know, I was like, what? I don't think this is, this is a good idea. Um, but there's been a lot of schools of thought. I think for me, um, it was finding out, you know, what I felt best eating um, before races and, and, you know, the night before I found that, you know, eating meat or, you know, pasta, anything heavy, um, you know, really didn't sit well with me. And I was pretty you know, more lethargic the next day. I always try to have something light like fish and, you know, fish and rice and vegetables. And then, um, you know, before the race, you know, obviously in Europe, it's a challenge to find consistency in anything. Um, you know, sometimes it's like croissants and, you know, a slice of ham and cheese and sometimes it's eggs and sometimes it's, you know, muesli. So I kind of just rolled with whatever was available. Um, I prefer, you know, a mix of protein and carb in the morning and also fat. Um, I think fat is not necessarily easy to come by in Europe, um, but if I can get an avocado um, or some bacon or something with fat in it, that will sustain me a lot more. And I'm also, I was someone that, you know, when I got on the hill, I had a hard time eating after that. And so I always lost a lot of weight um, in the season because I just wasn't able to get the calories. And also like, you know, after you finish a race, 
need to replenish, you know, you needed a protein shake or, you know, fruit or, you know, something at the end to make sure you're getting, you know, you're replacing all the glucose and everything that you've just expelled. Um, but it was hard for me to, to eat and to get again, those calories. So I think it's you know, managing yourself the best that you can, um, finding what works best for you. Um, and some people, you know, they don't, they don't operate well, um, with oatmeal. Um, you know, some people do, so it's just really figuring out, you know, what, what works best for you. I think amongst the four of us, if we all lined up with downhill boards on and just had a tuck off, who'd be fastest. I, I will play chicken. I will not break. I will go right <laughs> to the fence. So I, I'd say it's between you and Marco. <laughs> I would love to do it though. If it's a challenge, yeah. I told you, game, game on, let's do it. All right, you better come out for American Downhill or May then. Let's do it. I'll get uh, I'll get Heinzie to get me some, uh, give me some fast boards. How much do you ski now, Lindsay, on a regular basis? Are you able to get a bunch of days on, in the winter? Yeah, I definitely try. Um, I kind of go up. Um, you know, I, Deer Valley lets me up early. So I kind of get three, four runs in before the public's out. I go fast and then I, you know, go home and go back to work. Um, but I, I, I try to, you know, obviously last year there was like no snow. So it was a bit frustrating. Um, but if there's a powder day, I'm definitely first one on the lift. Um, if not, I just, you know, again, if I can get early up, so I'll definitely take the opportunity, but I'd probably like, I don't know, 30 days, maybe. It's like, a, it's a fair amount. It's not, you know, like crazy, but um, I also really like skiing with my family. So whenever they're in town, you know, which they're going to be here for Thanksgiving. So I haven't skied with my dad um, since uh, the year of Pyeongchang. So I'm hoping I can get back on the mountain with him this year. And I skied with my sisters last year, which is really fun. Um, I think, you know, skiing is one of those sports that is so family oriented and you can do it, um, you know, for a really long time. I don't honestly don't, honestly don't know how long my knees will allow me to do that, but I'm definitely going to ski with my family as long as possible. And talk about any projects that you have going on, uh, besides skiing, cause you're doing a <laughs> lot of stuff. Yeah, I'm doing a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty excited. There's a lot of opportunity and um, we just got a CBS deal with my production company, Opry Productions and my partner, Claire Abbey. Um, and um, I've got my goggle company, Unique. I've got um, a bunch of cool uh, designs coming out for my head ski line. Um, I am on the, uh, I'm actually chief, uh, chief of athletic experience for the Salt Lake Olympic bid, which I was just on a phone call this morning for. So hoping I can help get the Olympics back to Salt Lake. Um, I'm on a bunch of boards, different, different companies. I'm um, kind of uh, helping with marketing and companies. So I'm, I'm doing a lot and I, I just like new challenges. So I never like to kind of put myself in one box. I just like to wake up every day and find, you know, something new to excite me and, and work really hard. And that's, that's what I went. Oh, I enjoy. It's admirable. We definitely admire everything you're doing, the sport, what you've done, the sport, just uh, <laughs> what you continue to do. And also, like you have that Lindsey Vaughn Foundation, right, where you support uh, young women skiers. Like, you yeah, I, I mean, yeah. So the direct I effect to skiing. <laughs> yeah. So 2015, I started. That was one of the best things I think that um, came out of my injuries was being able to start the foundation and. Um, we give scholarships and programs to uh, underprivileged girls. 
Um, we have given quite a few scholarships and some of them actually resulted in uh, people making it to the Olympics. Um, one snowboarder. So, you know, I support snowboarders. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you know, we, we don't just focus on sports though. Um, it's educate 50% education, 50% sport. So um, we've, you know, we've had a lot of girls from um, a lot of different backgrounds, um, a lot of different states. And uh, I'm really proud of it. And I, I hope that, you know, we can get, continue to expand. I would love to get the foundation over to Europe as well. Um, it's something that, you know, they don't really do any youth programs over in Europe, um, especially for girls. So. Um, yeah, it's something that, you know, I think for me is really important because Peekaboo made such a big impact on my life. And I met her at a e-shop autograph signing for 90 seconds. And I still have her poster in my room, which may or not be, be weird at 38. You know, it's okay. I accept it. Um, but, you know, I, it's just a reminder that, you know, you can have a huge impact on someone um, with very little effort and very little time. Well, to make our lasting uh, impact... Before we sign off, thank you so much for this hour. Is there one uh, particular race, one particular win at Lake Louise, so we can maybe look it up on YouTube, that was your favorite, that just stands out for you and why? Yeah, the one that I won by such a large margin. Um, because again, I was on men's skis and it was such a big statement. It was the first race of the year. And um I just, um, I like shocking people, you know, I like doing things differently. And um, I think that was uh, a lot of validation for me and the work that, that I had put in. I mean, I could name a lot of World Cups that I loved, you know, winning there, especially, you know, coming back from my boat, my two ACL surgeries and winning um, my second race back. That was amazing too. But um, I think what stands out to me the most is that first win um, with Heinze and with the men's skis. Awesome. We'll look it up on YouTube and post it in the notes. Thanks for watching and listening to our American Downhiller podcast. Next week, we will breaking down the course where Darren Rawls still has the course record at Beaver Creek. How cool is that? They are headed to Beaver Creek for AJ, Darren, Marco, and the GOAT, Lindsey Vaughn. Thanks for listening. A special thanks to our sponsors, SkiRacing.com, ADLSkiClub.com, American Downhillers Camps and Clinics, and Elite Team Fitness Camps. If you'd like to sponsor these podcasts, contact Doug Lewis at info at americandownhiller.com. Ski fast.